0: I'm Ruth Reeder and you're listening to Fast Break, your weekly source of inspiration and motivation in these uncertain times. Talib is out on a much-earned vacation, so I'm stepping in for him. This week, we'll learn about UV radiation and its use against the spread of COVID-19. Then we'll hear why Americans love carbs again after so many years of hating them and get some fun tips on how to spice up your culinary skills. This is your Fast Break. Ultraviolet light has a long history of being used as a disinfectant. At the right dose, this electromagnetic energy can kill airborne microbes. With concerns that the coronavirus can be transmitted by tiny particles called aerosols, businesses have been using UV radiation to disinfect surfaces and even the air. But there are concerns about buying UV products that claim to protect against COVID-19. There's also some confusion about the different types of UV radiation and what they're capable of doing. To understand this more, I talked with Dr. David Brenner, the director of the Center for Radiological Research at Columbia University. So, Dr. Brenner, can you just tell me a little bit about your work, just so that our audience understands how it's different from other ultraviolet radiation?
1: Sure, well, I mean, we've known for a long time, more than 100 years, that ultraviolet radiation is really very efficient at killing bacteria and viruses. Viruses is, of course, what we worry about uh, with COVID-19. And it's been used for uh, decontamination for decades. The issue has been that conventional germicidal UV light can't be directly exposed to people because of the health hazards, the health risks associated with that, in terms of the skin, in terms of the eyes. So we've always had to take somewhat indirect routes to try and uh, use UV light. One thing that's been used, for example, is simply to use UV light when there aren't people around. In my own hospital, it's used to uh, decontaminate uh, surgical theatres overnight. And you may have heard that the MTA is using UV light to decontaminate subways and buses, but overnight when people are not in those uh, buses and trains. Which is good, but of course, come the morning when the people come back into the uh, trains and buses, they start to bring their aerosols and viruses back into that environment. So by the end of the day, it's it's no longer a clean environment. So what what you really like is a type of UV light which still kills bacteria and viruses, but doesn't have the safety uh, issues associated with it, the human safety issues. And that's where we have been developing what we call far UVC light. And far UVC light is simply a different wavelength from the conventional UVC light. Conventional UVC has a wavelength of about 250 nanometers. Far UVC has a wavelength of about 220 nanometers, which, which doesn't sound a lot, but actually it, it makes a great deal of difference in terms of safety.
0: Right, uh, and previously the UV light that was used for decontamination was more or in the range of like 254 nanometers, correct?
1: That's right. And, and this is a little less than that. This is about 220 nanometers.
0: Right. And so there's been concern recently from certain you know, industrial organizations that deal with UV light and some UV light installation who were saying, you know, don't buy UV devices online that are purporting to kill coronavirus germs because they may not. Because previously, you know, outside of your field of study, outside of this 222 nanometer wavelength, you know, there is some concern, as you were saying earlier, about exposing oneself to a higher nanometer wavelength of UV radiation. And so that's sort of the concern with some of these devices. They either sort of don't work or if they do, you know, there's a worry about harm.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. The conventional germicidal UV light, you can't directly expose people to that. So the things that people are buying on, on the internet, as you, as you say, either will not work or, or they're going to be uh, a health risk. What we've been developing is a type of UV light which doesn't have those health risks. So the idea is it can be continuously used uh, in, with uh, UV lights in ceilings, for example, to continuously decontaminate indoor environments, indoor rooms and offices, restaurants, hospitals, any place where people are congregating and continuously decontaminating the air and to an extent surfaces too. And if you can keep the amount of virus in the air down, you are decreasing the risk of transmission of of COVID.
0: That's right. And so we're starting to see some of these devices, some of which purport to have or use the 222 nanometer wavelength. And so we're seeing these in different installations, right? We talked about, you know, and you were just saying putting them at the top of the ceiling may work best just for sort of decontaminating the whole room. But we've also seen these sort of portals, which I have a few questions about the use case for something like a, a portal where you, you stand under 220 nanometer wavelengths for 20 seconds or something like that. What do you think is the best use case for this kind of light, radiation, I should say?
1: Yeah, I think it's undoubtedly using overhead lights. The various manufacturers that are producing these things have them in different formats. They can either replace your current lights in the ceiling, and uh, you'd have a, a combined light which has visible light and far UVC light. Or there can be add-ons, there can be extra lights again installed in the ceiling, basically to continuously decontaminate primarily the air in in the room and to an extent the surfaces in the room.
0: Yes, that's great. As you were explaining to me, I made an error in my article where I said that this technology, there weren't a lot of standards around sort of the implementation, but in fact, you know there is an organization that limits or sets standards for how much dosage, a person should be able to take of any kind of nanometer length UV radiation. So I'm curious, you know, as a consumer, because I think that is sort of the concern, like how do you know which devices are best or who is putting out these devices that are according to standard? Like what's a good rule of
1: thumb? Well, the, these 222 nanometer far UVC lights really haven't hit the, the mass market. For example, you, you can't buy them on, on the internet, you can't buy them on, on Amazon. There are a couple of companies that are really starting to ramp up production. And and I should say, I mean, if we'd had this discussion in January of this year, production of these far UVC lights would have been almost zero. So the companies were certainly considering developing these lights. And the idea there was for influenza. to we believe it's going to be as effective for stopping or or limiting the, the transmission of influenza. But, you know, we were working fairly slowly on this and slowly and steadily. But uh, come the COVID-19 crisis of this year, the manufacturers immediately started to build up uh, their production capacity. And I'm told by the end of the year, the capacity is going to be in in the millions. So we're going to see an awful lot of these lights. But their general use is is for public spaces like airports, airplanes, offices, restaurants. So less, less so for individual home use, I would have thought, at least at the moment. So you're not going to see these devices on the internet, on Amazon at this point, because it's really larger organizations that are going to be buying them for their own public spaces.
0: That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Brenner, and for clearing up the differences between various ultraviolet radiations and what is the most effective for both engaging in public spaces and also, you know, potentially killing COVID-19 in those spaces.
1: It's a pleasure. And I might just add, we certainly don't see this as a substitute. We have our social distancing, keeping six feet away from people. We have our masks. And we see this potentially as, as a third uh, weapon in, in, in this war against COVID-19, but certainly not a replacement for those. So we still, when appropriate, need to be wearing masks. We still need to be keeping our social distancing. But if we can keep the level of virus in indoor rooms much lower, we'll certainly be helping control this, this crisis.
0: That's great. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me again. I really do appreciate it. I think this will help people understand better.
1: Ruth, it's my pleasure.
0: The early days of the pandemic when it was still cold outside and everybody was forced to be indoors bread of all things became an icon of a return to domesticity famously no one could find flour at any of the grocery stores and King Arthur's sales were up something like 2,000 percent Instagram grids were awash in pornographic crumb shops bubbly loaves fresh out of the oven in quarantine we all learned how to bake bread and we also gave up On hating carbs and this newfound love of carbs was really new because for the last several years we've been obsessed with carb-cutting diets like Atkins or the paleo diet or most recently the ketogenic diet but perhaps that reason for giving into carbs during the pandemic was because nobody's gonna work on a beach body when it's ill-advised to go to the beach so recently, I wrote a piece about whether or not the pandemic has killed the keto diet and also just sort of the whole idea of a low carb diet. So let's first talk about what a keto diet is and how it works. The ketogenic diet is based on the way that the body deals with sugars. So the body uses blood sugar as its main source of energy. When we eat fewer carbs or no carbs or just you know have lower blood sugar, the body turns to stored fat. And that's how you get that fat burning effect. That process is called ketosis. So did the pandemic kill the ketogenic diet? Before the pandemic, keto became very popular because of a few things. One, we were already conditioned to like low carb diets because of previous diets like Atkins and Paleo. But it also had this, it sort of had an opportunity to ride the wave of Instagram. One of the things that keto diet enthusiasts are famous for are these before and after photos where you see a person who goes from one weight to a much lesser weight ostensibly using the keto diet. In January of 2019, Google searches for the ketogenic diet peaked harder and higher than searches for any similarly fattish diet. So what happened? How did we go from bragging about weight loss to showing off our very rotund sourdough loaves? Probably a global health crisis. I spoke to Dr. Marcelo Campos, a family doctor who happens to specialize in nutrition. He said, quote, it goes back to the thing that food is pleasure and there's not a lot of pleasure these days. When you take away a lot of the things that are good in life, the freedom to move around, to go to parks, to go to beaches, to go for a jog, people have turned to the places that they can find pleasure, like carbs. So, no matter how diligent people were about their previous diets or their desire to lose weight, the desire for pleasure is really trumping all of that. Even Dr. Campos is figuring out how to make his favorite treats at home. You know, in his old diet, he allowed himself a lemon square every two weeks from his favorite bakery. In the absence of being able to go to that bakery, he's been starting to make them at home, and this is actually how he found out that flour was nowhere to be found. (laughs) And he's seeing among his patients that weight gain is up, and his patients are talking about the quarantine 15, the quarantine 30. But it's really hard to blame Americans for engaging in a little self-soothing during this incredibly stressful time. The real question is, will our pandemic-induced love affair with carbs survive the next diet craze? And that is a question for another day. During the pandemic, we've all had to step up our game in the kitchen. For those of you who don't enjoy cooking, Fast Company senior staff writer Liz Siegren has some helpful recommendations.
2: Listen, I really don't like to cook. My entire repertoire of cooking comes down to spaghetti, peanut butter sandwiches, and reheated meals that I get from Trader Joe's. Even when I was in grad school, I hated cooking. In fact, I hated cooking so much that I turned my oven into a filing cabinet because it seemed like a better use of the space. But during this pandemic, things have changed. We haven't been able to go out to restaurants as much, and I've been really trying to spice up my cooking at home. So I've been in search of tools that will help improve my cooking. Here's what i found. This cookbook has been a lifesaver to me during this pandemic. It's by Jamie Oliver, and it's called Five Ingredients. And just like the title says, He has these amazing recipes that he's created that only require five ingredients. Part of the reason that I don't like cooking is because so many cookbooks are so complicated. They have so many steps and require so many different ingredients, and this cookbook just makes everything so simple, and yet the food tastes delicious. The one-pan fabulous fish, where you cook the fish and the rice in the same pan, and Ginger Shaking Beef, which is basically Jamie Oliver's take on the kind of delicious beef that you might get at a Chinese restaurant. And if you need additional inspiration, Jamie Oliver has a Hulu series where he cooks all of the recipes in the book, which can be really motivating when you're struggling to get into the kitchen to cook dinner. I think everyone can agree that one of the worst parts of cooking is the pile of dishes that you get in the sink after you're done with your delicious dinner. And it's particularly awful having to scrub your pots and pans, which is why I really like nonstick cookware. The problem with most nonstick cookware, though, is that it's coated with nasty chemicals, and I've been searching for a natural, non toxic alternative. And here's where I found Caraway. Caraway is a new direct to consumer cooking brand that creates beautiful, Pots and pans. The pans are coated with ceramic, which is non-stick and works just as well or sometimes even better than a traditional non-stick pan. What I really love about the brand is that every aspect is beautifully designed. The pots and pans look beautiful so that you can leave them on your stove and you don't mind because it looks so beautiful. But if you do wanna store them away, the company sells a storage system so that you can neatly store the pots and the pans and all of the covers and it just looks really tidy in your kitchen cabinet. As you know, everyone and their grandma has been baking banana bread during this pandemic, and I didn't wanna miss out. At the beginning of the lockdown, I searched around for various banana bread recipes, and I found one that I really love. It is from the New York Times cooking section, and it is available for free online. And here's the funny story. I was bragging to my coworker, KC, about how I had found the best banana bread recipe. And he said, no, that's not possible because he had found the best banana bread recipe. And you know what? It turned out to be the same one. And then the next day, I was talking about banana bread to my editor, Suzanne, and she had said, hold the phone. I have found the best banana bread recipe. And guess what? It was the same banana bread recipe. So there you go. Fast Company writers and editors have all tested this recipe and we all love it. You're welcome. What's really great about this recipe is that it's super simple. It doesn't call for a lot of ingredients and it requires you to use a lot of bananas. So the final banana bread has a really delicious banana flavor and texture to it. And what's really cool is that the recipe also offers options in case you want to create different versions of banana bread. My daughter really likes this banana bread with big chunks of chocolate chips in it. My husband likes it with bits of coconut. So you can really customize this recipe to whatever your personal taste is. All of these things have made for much more delicious meals during this pandemic. But over time, I've also seen my cooking improving. And that's one little bright spot that has come out of this dark time.
0: That's it for this week. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. Be sure to check in with us next week for another roundup of helpful tips and creative ideas to stay positive throughout this challenging time. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like this show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us, I'm Ruth Reader.